A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian who works either in or through the mucky business of politics. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin and of course you'd be right, but then again so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are in politics and doing so in an informed way. Today, we're going to be joined by journalist and political advisor, Tim Montgomery. We'll hear how he came to found the Conservative Christian Fellowship, work in Downing Street and become one of the most recognisable names in political commentary. But before that, I want to look at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Eight years ago, Russia invaded Crimea, taking it from Ukraine by force. Ever since, it has been arming Russia-supporting rebels, deploying cyber attacks and seeking to destabilise the Ukrainian government and its economy. 14,000 people have already died in Russian-sponsored hostilities in eastern Ukraine, and now 150,000 Russian troops are amassed on the Ukrainian border, though President Putin denies that he is going to invade. Of course, now we see that the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, part of sovereign Ukraine, have been effectively annexed by Russia, or rather recognised as independent states. Most observers have thought that Putin is looking to find a pretext to invade, most likely in response to action by the Ukrainian government against those Russia-backed rebels. Ukraine isn't in NATO. If it was, then NATO members, including the UK, the US and most European countries, would be obliged to swoop in to defend Ukraine. Putin's official position, his excuse, is that he insists that Ukraine mustn't join NATO because he doesn't want to have what he considers a hostile power on his border. But Ukraine isn't likely to join NATO anytime soon, and in any event, if I might share an opinion here, what business is it of Putin's to tell an independent democracy what it can and cannot do? Diplomatic measures to prevent an invasion and prevent a war are stepping up. US President Joe Biden and European leaders, including our own Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, have been visiting and calling the key protagonists, and French President Macron is trying to set up a summit. If Russia invades Ukraine and successfully reintegrates it into its territory, economic sanctions or no sanctions, it would have huge consequences, effectively creating a precedent for any bully to do as they please sending a message to China, for example, that they could invade Taiwan with impunity. The stakes are huge. Boris Johnson has warned of the worst conflict since the Second World War. Ukrainian President Zelensky has even talked of appeasement in his speech at the recent Munich conference, deliberately echoing the failed attempt to stop Hitler at the conference of the same name in 1938. If Putin does not withdraw, Western governments are threatening harsh sanctions on Russian businesses, banks and assets abroad and cutting off an important source of gas supply for Europe, as well as providing support to the Ukrainian army, which is now much stronger than it was at the time of the Crimean invasion. How should Christians respond? Well, we should value the truth and not allow ourselves to be taken in by Putin-sponsored misinformation that would seek to justify his bullying and warmongering. As I always say, if a friend at church has a poorly mother, you will ask her name and seek to inform yourself about her situation so that you can pray well for her. The same applies here. Let's inform ourselves and pray. Pray for the people of Ukraine. 
Pray for Putin's heart to be turned against war. Pray for justice. Pray for God's people there that they would be faithful, be encouraged and hold out the gospel in these times of fear and uncertainty. Our news is dominated by domestic concerns, COVID rules, integrity in number 10, the cost of living, and these are all important. But let us hold in our hearts and in our prayers the people of Ukraine living under daily threat of invasion, the stress and fear of losing their way of life, and still worse, the prospect of losing family members and friends. In Matthew 5, we are told that peacemakers will be blessed. And in Romans 12, we read that we should live peaceably with all, so far as it depends upon us. So, when someone else makes war, what are we to do? Christians may think very differently on whether Western governments should respond militarily. There's a wide range of Christian thought from Augustine's just war theory to pacifism. There are thousands of Christian believers in Ukraine. Let's join with them in praying for peace. Let's also pray for Ukrainian officials to effectively tackle the cyber attacks, misinformation and secret intelligence operations that are attempting to provoke civil unrest and panic in their country. Pray for economic and social stability within Ukraine, for strength and wisdom when it comes to the Ukrainian army and air defence. And let's pray for wisdom for our government in tandem with other Western leaders. Western liberal democracy is seriously flawed, but at its foundation, it has been shaped by Christian values of justice, equality and the value of each human life. Let's remember that. Let's also remember the consequences of our abandonment of the people of Afghanistan and learn from that mistake. And let's keep praying, casting all our worries onto the one who has overcome the world, triumphing over dictators and democracies to build the only perfect kingdom and the only kingdom that will last forever. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to today's guest, Tim Montgomery. Uh, Tim, you are a Christian and you are heavily interested in and involved in the world of politics as a commentator and as a protagonist. You were first interested in politics before you became a Christian. Tell me how that came about. Oh, well, first of all, Tim, thank you so much for having me on. And um, listeners won't be aware, this is the second time I've attempted to do this podcast with you. And you've been gracious enough not to mention the first but without going into too much details i was quite ill that morning and um um i think i would count you as a friend tim but um i yes. think you're the first uh, politician i've ever vomited at <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you were gracious enough to have me back on but my goodness that was an eventful first attempt but uh, i wasn't uh, going to mention was, it <laughs> you really weren't but it was awful and uh, i'm very glad we've been able to do it again but um you're out getting your revenge on me because um, I'm sort of slightly embarrassed about the fact that um, I think I might have been younger even than William Hague when I started to become interested in politics. So my first sort of strong political memory when I was 11 years of, of old, that was 1981. The big debate then in the United Kingdom was about the stationing of nuclear weapons in yeah. Britain. Yeah. And um, first of all, my teacher had told me that nuclear weapons were an evil thing and impressionable young thing that I was, I took this in and went home to tell my dad how ashamed I was of him. Now he was a serving soldier at that time. We were in Germany and uh, he introduced me to the, uh, very patiently introduced me to the idea of nuclear deterrence. And 
I was persuaded by him. Complained to my teacher the next day, but that's another story. Mm. But from then on, really, that's, I can remember this lady on the television with big hair and a handbag and a blue suit fascinated me. Fascinated me, Tim, I think, in the opposite ways to you. And I think from there on in, um, I sort of became a conservative. And, um, and this national defence has always been something of a priority for me, although since then my conservatism has broadened. And I guess if we had time, we, we could draw some parallels to the, the biggest issue of, of today in, in Ukraine and the importance of, of oh dear, yes. defence. Yeah. Let me instead take you to um, not long after your um, coming to the decision that you were a conservative, um, you took your family to church and you became a Christian in that order. How did that come about? Well, that is even more un- unfathomable. But um, <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, we were, I think we were, uh, you know, a good family. We went to church occasionally. Um but certainly not regularly. And apparently I came home from school uh, one day when I was um, eight or nine and um, just said, um, why don't we go to church? I think we should. And we then, my mum and dad, for some reason, I don't know whether I was a bossy little child or they were just trying to accommodate me. We started regularly going to a local Anglican church, which, um, I don't want this theme of this podcast to be um, sickness, uh, Tim, but Mm. actually I was quite ill regularly at this church because um, the incense used to really aggravate me. And so I used to burn that at the back of the church with the the church warden, etc., and my mum most weekends. But we kept at it, and really for a number of years we, we went to church. I wouldn't say we were were committed Christians at all. It was just something we mm. did almost as a social thing. But that's how it started. And um, yeah, almost from a message from God to a little schoolboy and all the family started going to church. Amazing and powerful stuff. And there was a point where you made a personal commitment? Yeah, not just me, but uh, alongside the rest of my family. You know, we did start going to church and... Mm. Um, I think we knew all the teaching over the years that we went, but I don't think it was something that really was a life-changing thing. And we went to um, a Sunday afternoon meeting um, of something called the Soldiers and Airmen Scripture Readers Association, which some of your listeners might be aware of, but has done fantastic work over the years, working with soldiers and bringing their, their families to faith. Mm. And um, we went to one of their meetings, and it was John Murray, a Baptist, who uh, still obviously is someone I feel very grateful for. He he gave a, a sort of a evangelistic talk in which the central message was that which C.S. Lewis has presented and mm. found the ages has asked people to decide for themselves once and for all who Jesus was. Was he mad, bad, or the son of God? And we're not a particular, we're not a demonstrative family. We're not the sort of family I think you'd expect to go to the front of a hall or anything mm. when a, a call is made. But uh, we all went um, mm. that day, and uh, I don't think we've ever looked back since. Amazing, and 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 so there then came a, a decision for you, a kind of a sense of conflict almost that you thought, at least for a little while, that you might have to drop the politics because of this. 
Yes, as a sort of, I think with some um, some attitude which Christians have, and I can understand it. You know, Tim, I don't need to tell you that um, politics can be a messy business, and mm. I think a lot of Christians uh, are very good at praying for those in authority, but that's certainly true of uh, many conservative MPs I know actually find that going to church, going to their churches, is, is quite you know, hard work because a lot of their fellow believers don't seem to recognize the compromises that they they have to make. And Mm -hmm. um, I think I had a sort of view that politics was not something that someone who was doing God's work Mm -hmm. could do because we were were soldiers for truth and um, Mm -hmm. we were we had some absolute beliefs and not the sort of beliefs that politicians seem to sometimes you know, promise at one general election and jettison at another. But mm. I realized that, you know, we are called to be in the world. We are all uh, commanded to love our neighbors. And actually, yes, 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 politics is a messy business. But actually, the, what, the, the, the work that politicians do, either by omission or commission, is an incredibly important way that uh, we can help or hinder those we share this planet with. And um, it was really the example of William Wilberforce and his ability to uh, fight tactically, uh, to be part of a fellowship group which held him accountable, which showed me a way of a Christian to be involved in politics, to make a difference and not to be so purist that Mm. um, you couldn't be used this side of heaven. Mm. And so you were instrumental in in setting up later the Conservative Christian Fellowship, which very much works to support Christians who are active in the Conservative Party, but also draw people who are Christians but who have and who have a, a, a kind of conservative set of political beliefs to suggest them that political activism is is something that they could or maybe even should do. Yes, and um, I. Uh, yes, I set up the Conservative Christian Fellowship with David Burroughs, the former mm. Conservative MP, while we were still at university. Mm. And um, we felt there was a gap in the uh, sort of Conservative family for that sort of organisation. And um, we often got the question when we were at university, how can you be a Conservative Christian? And we partly set up the organisation to, to tackle that. But we always had a policy that of not having any policies in terms of political policies. Mm. We felt that um, just just as we wanted to persuade people that, yes, Christianity and conservatism were, in our view, compatible, we wanted to honour those Christians going into other political parties who still Mm. believed in the same ends as us, wanting to help those who are poor or those who are suffering, those who are homeless, etc., etc., um, but had decided that Liberal Democrat or Labour or Green policies were the, were the way to do it. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with journalist and political advisor Tim Montgomery. Uh, Tim, you are a person who strongly supported the UK leaving the European Union. You obviously strongly support the Conservative Party and its principles and its policies broadly. Um, so we'd expect you to be a strong supporter of Boris Johnson. But in recent times, you've had uh, cause to suggest that maybe that's not the case and it's all about character I think and uh, and integrity tell me a little bit 
about how you've come to that conclusion. Tim, this has been one of the hardest uh, political chapters of my um, life. Because not only did I support uh, Boris Johnson, I actually worked with mm. him over the years to help him become prime minister. Mm. And uh, I did so in full knowledge of some of the aspects of his personal life. But I think as a Christian, I knew was, you know, wrong. And, um, but, you know, many Christians throughout the ages have thought as wrong. I, I've always been sort of willing, I, th- I hope you'd agree, Tim, we aren't putting this, the best person to be prime minister isn't necessarily a saint. There have been plenty of people throughout um, national life and international life who have had flawed, uh, fallen personal lives who turned out to be good leaders in various ways. Um, but um, and I, I, I knew that uh, Boris Johnson's flaws, obviously, when I and others put him in office. Um, but whilst I think you can allow for uh, brokenness in, in leaders, I think it gets to a point where there seems to be not just brokenness, but a refusal to even acknowledge that it's brokenness, that there's, there's patterns of behavior that um, the, uh, the person seems completely immersed in and, and not able to break or not willing to break. Mm. And... Um, very, very regrettably, because um, I, I do, we, and we will, I'm afraid, have to disagree, agree to disagree on issues like Brexit, Tim. Um, he, it may well have been that he was uh, able to beat Jeremy Corbyn and get Brexit over the line in December 2019 in a way that no other Conservative leader was able to do. And I will always be grateful for that. But... It's almost as if that victory against the odds sort of given him a belief that he can almost walk on water and that the the uh, the behaviour that he exhibited when he was mayor of London, which gave me a lot of encouragement that he built a team around him of heavyweights and he listened to them. He hasn't done the same in Downing Street. There's a, there is an arrogance, I'm afraid, there, coupled with patterns of behaviour that I think... Um, have produced the sorry, helped to produce the sorry mess that um, I'm afraid we're all too familiar with now. And do you think, obviously, there's a, uh, in, in modern times, last 20 or 30 years, there's a sense that a politician's private life and whether they are truthful or otherwise, those people they're closest to is kind of none of our business. And all that matters is that, you know, they, they do the job well or, that, or, or not. But I think you're suggesting that what we're, learning here is that character and integrity in one's private life does have an impact on our ability to be good and worthwhile leaders in our public life. I think it's something that um, we, 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 we should feel able to at least consider. I, I, I don't want to get to the position which I once held, which was that anyone who falters uh, should be sort of excluded from public office because someone who lies in their private life will lie in their public life to oversimplify things. But, you know, we aren't uh, human beings where our behaviour in one realm is completely, you know, which might be completely uh, riotous, if you like, um, 
and then we're going to be completely straight and reliable in in that other walk of life. That's that's unusual, and I think I, I do think that personal behaviour and character do matter. Um, but equally, Tim, there are skills in a politician which mean that someone who is perhaps saintly in every respect might not be the sort of risk taker or the or the um, the, the bold leader that a country might need, and so. But the questions of the, what you want in a leader aren't simple. Tim, in, in my kind of um, post-ambitious state, and, uh, and and as you know, hosting this podcast, I do my best to be non-partisan as much as I can. So I'm still trying to do that. <laughs> and when I say the issue with Boris Johnson seems to me twofold around the parties and and so on. One is that this was a shocking example to set. Um, it shows, you know, a disdain for the public who are mostly abiding by those rules. But secondly, it's the kind of dishonesty and they're not telling the truth about those things. Do you think um, if, though, if, if we accept that those are problematic, do we think that now we have um, the potential to move out of the COVID regulations? We obviously have this terrible crisis in Ukraine, cost of living crisis. Do we think we should just sort of forgive him and get on with uh, allowing Boris Johnson to lead us through those issues? Or do we think that he is fundamentally weakened in dealing with those issues because of the parties and everything we've just talked about, and that therefore he would need to go so that we can be led by someone who is not so distracted? Well, I think either way forward now is difficult. I do think on balance he should uh, resign because of... Um, the, the, the seriousness of the breaches and the, the repeated nature of the breaches. I think you're right. There's one thing to fail. The other thing is kind of to cover it up when you have failed, not to be straight with people. I think that's what's upset a lot of people. I think the British people are actually quite a forgiving people. They are willing to sort of indulge uh, a failure or two because they know there, but for the grace of God, uh, go then. Uh, but um, it's, it's the repeated failures and sort of the, the refusal to acknowledge that that's the problem. And while I think there is a real you know, danger for the Conservative Party and the country of throwing ourselves into a potentially very distracting leadership contest at a time like this, you know, I think you hear a little bit on the media now, not unreasonably, that people are wondering every decision Boris Johnson is taking at the moment, whether it's on Russia or on anything else, it's being seen as a part of the survival bid or a bit a part of his attempt to curry favour with his own backbench MPs, not because he's taking those decisions in the interests of the country or the or the international scene. And it's sort of that sense that he's wounded and not acting in the best interest of the country that I feel means it's sort of an extra reason why on balance I feel he, he probably does need to to, to go. Tim, we could talk about so many other things, but I think we've come to the end of our time. I'm massively grateful to you for being very open about your own personal journey and about your thoughts about those huge issues we face at the moment. We're very lucky to have you in the place that you are. God bless you and thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you for having me on this podcast. I've really appreciated it. Each week we answer a question from you, the listener. About how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. 
If you've got a question, we'd love it if you'd write it in in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Jenny in Southampton has been in touch and she asks the following. I'm afraid that politics, at least in Parliament, is a mucky business, but more than that, it's a cauldron of hatred. There seems to be real hatred across the chamber on a personal level, and it sometimes sounds like a school playground. Is it really that bad? Well, I think my answer to that, Jenny, is um, sometimes but not always. I think during the those late nights and those close votes over Brexit, when feelings ran so high, it was about more than just party politics. It was about our sense of our personal identity, what kind of country we wanted to be. And there was uh, accusation and counter accusation of, um, of betraying the people and all that kind of thing. It got really personal and deeply, deeply unpleasant. I think now it isn't as bad, uh, although it's fairly obvious that Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer do more than just disagree with one another. There's a clear clash there in terms of personalities and characters. Having said that, most of the television coverage of the House of Commons is based upon Prime Minister's questions or those big set piece statements by the Prime Minister challenged by the leader of the opposition. But the overwhelming majority of things in the House of Commons aren't like that at all. They're much more thoughtful, they're much more peaceful, um, there is much more proper debate, and people do treat each other with respect. For me, as I walk around this place, um, bumping into people of all political parties, I say hello to everybody, and nearly all of them say hello back. And it is a much more collegiate place than you might imagine. So maybe not so glamorous, but I chair two all-party parliamentary groups on hill farming and on radiotherapy and cancer. And in those groups, I work with lots of people from different political parties to try and put forward a kind of common approach to the government. So there's a lot more cross-party working here than you might imagine. And for Christians, surely our job is to try to maintain that graciousness in the way we speak. We may well disagree wildly on the issues, but we can surely recognise that kingdom comes before tribe and that part of our witness is to treat one another gently and kindly, offering and holding out forgiveness where that is applicable, and doing and therefore holding our passionate beliefs in a way which hopefully draws people to Jesus. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you and we hold out to you and hold up to you, Ukraine, the country of Ukraine, its leaders and its people. Uh, we pray for justice um, as we see that um, Russia has uh, recognised two uh, regions of Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, and claim that they are now independent countries, um, even though they have not called for that themselves. We worry very much that um, a powerful uh, nuclear force is seeking to take uh, parts of a sovereign country by force. We don't know what your will is, um, but we feel this is a deep injustice. And we pray for people living their lives in every bit of Ukraine, um, seeking to go about their daily lives, but with real fear as to what the future holds. Uh, fear for their way of life, fear for life itself. So we just pray for justice and we pray for peace. We pray for uh, President Putin's heart to be turned against war and expansionism. We pray for wisdom uh, for Ukraine's leaders and for Western leaders that they would take action that is decisive and uh, would uh, help the situation uh, to bring about peace and bring about justice. We pray for protection for the citizens of Ukraine. And we pray also 
um, for uh, the the economy that there will be stability there too. In particular, Lord, we hold up to you the church, our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who are in Ukraine. We pray that they would be faithful to you. They would hold out uh, the hope um, that is only found in Jesus to uh, the rest of that country, that they would be a, uh, a, a shining light on the hill that would draw people to you. But we ask for peace, we ask for justice, and we ask for your hand to be revealed in Ukraine and in all uh, the discussions and machinations that are taking place uh, affecting that country's future. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget you can catch up on all the shows which have included interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. Thanks very, very much for joining us. Thank you.